As you can see, today we are talking about blood. You heard there were songs talking about blood, and that's, that's unpleasant. We don't like thinking about blood unless we absolutely have to. Because we know if we lose too much of it, that, that means we die. Blood is pain. Blood is war. Blood is destruction of life. If we're bleeding, we know something is wrong. We need to do something to get it fixed. We know how serious loss of blood is. That's why here at the church, we often host blood drives. We partner with the Central Penn Blood Bank. And several times throughout the year, many of our members donate blood. And that's a good thing to do. I do it. I, I enjoy participating in that. But the only problem with that is when we donate blood, at best, it's only temporary. At best, we can just prolong someone's life. Because in the end, we do all die. But maybe there's a type of blood that's better than the type that we can give. And that's the type of blood we're talking about today. Years ago, we've several times have had some type of shirt or a jacket or something that has our church name on it that we do in part for fun, in part to show people where we gather together to worship. One particular t-shirt we had many years ago, I'm actually wearing it right now. I'm not going to open my suit so you can see it, but, but just take my word for it, I, mean, I, I am, is one that has a cross on it and says, a blood donor saved my life. And then on the back of the shirt, it has East Shore Baptist Church, and it also lists a verse we're going to read today, Hebrews 9, 22. And the point of this shirt is another type of blood donor that we need. We need someone who gave his blood, his life for us. And that's what our passage today, Hebrews 9, 15 through 28, is all about. We can't appreciate our salvation until we understand what it costs. Uh, if you're not there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. In the interest of time, I might have us, in, instead of reading the whole passage, we might just read a, a portion of it, um, because we'll cover it as we go through the sermon. So I'm just going to read two verses of it and then we'll pray and we'll look at God's word. So I'm going to read uh, verse 15 and then I'll read verse 22. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, which you can see on the screen or if you'd like to use that blue Bible in front of you, says this, therefore he, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then verse 22 says, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, as our world is full of news of war and death and bloodshed, we're reminded of the need we have for your cleansing blood. How without you, we are lost in our sins and we need your death, your life given for us on our behalf. I pray, God, that as we look at your word today, you would show us afresh how necessary your death was how necessary the bloody sacrifice was that brought us into a right relationship with you. I pray that if there are those who 
do not know you here today, that they will hear of your once for all sacrifice, that they will understand that after death comes judgment, that they will see the truth that you are coming back and that they have a decision to make. I pray, God, that our focus on something unpleasant such as blood would lead to greater worship of you and of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood for us. It's in his name now that I pray. Amen. If you've been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews. This is a letter in the New Testament. An author, we don't quite know who he is, but he's writing to Jewish background believers. They used to practice Judaism, but now they're followers of Christ. And his message to them is, do not go back. Do not go back to the old way because Jesus is better. He's better than your old faith. He's better than what you knew before. Stay with him. Last week, Pastor Tom shared with us how Jesus is better than many of the things they had in that Old Testament, that old covenant system. He's better than the tent, the tabernacle where they worshiped God. He's better than all the sacrifices that were offered then. Pastor Tom talked about how the first half of chapter 9 is all about the idea of lesser to greater. It's not that the temple and the sacrifices were bad, that they were good in and of themselves, but they're so much less than what Jesus Christ has done for us. And our text is go, today is going to build on that reality to show us that not only was Jesus' death better, but it was also a necessary death. A necessary death. If you're using the outline, that's your first blank. That Jesus' death on the cross was a necessary death. Our passage, verse 15, begins the word therefore. And when you're reading the Bible, the trick they teach you is when there's a therefore, you ask what the therefore is there for. So what is this therefore talking about? It's talking about what Pastor Tom preached about last week. Because knowing Jesus is better than meeting God at a tent. Because Jesus' sacrifice is greater than an animal sacrifice. Verse 15 tells us, therefore he, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's telling us Jesus is the mediator, the arbiter of a new covenant, a new relationship with God. He's the one who represents us. If you remember a few weeks ago, the sermon was Jesus is better than your lawyer. So it's that type of idea. He represents us. But that image of Jesus as our lawyer, it can be a little misleading. And it can be misleading because we get the idea that we're in a courtroom and we're on one side and God's on the other and Jesus stands in the middle between us. But that, that's not quite an accurate picture. A better picture is we're down below and God is up above and Jesus is the only one who can cross that distance. He's the only one who can stand in the middle. Paul writes in 1 Timothy that there is one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Christ reveals a new way of relating to God, a new covenant. He serves as the priest, the one who executes that covenant because he sacrificed himself. Again, this is what Pastor Tom talked about last week. Jesus resolves our disagreement, our conflict with God because he takes our punishment. 
And this was the only way for it to happen. One Puritan named John Flavel, he put it this way, surely God would not come down to assume a body to die and be offered up for us. He wouldn't do this if at any cheaper rate it could have been accomplished. No, there was no other way to recover man and satisfy God. This was the only way that he could bring us to God. Why did he want to do this? Well, our text, verse 15, told us that he has something to give his people. God saves those that he calls to salvation and he brings them to a place where they can receive the promised eternal inheritance, where we can receive God's eternal promises. That's what our verse says here. We'll read later in chapter 10. The author says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Jesus' death is the means. It's the way that he can give us this gift from God, this eternal inheritance and promise. His death redeems, it ransoms, it purchases us out of our slavery to sin, to, to transgression, It saves us from how we violate God's law. Paul wrote in Romans 5 that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so now we're free from the eternal penalty of sin. And now we can receive God's eternal promise. This only happens because of Christ's death. And that's what the next two verses talk about, verses 16 and 17. Let me read them to you. It says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, there's some debate about whether that word will is talking about a will as we understand it, or a testament, or a covenant, because it's also how a sacrifice works. But let's think about this idea of a will. A will, a legal document that says what will happen to someone's assets when they die. You could be named in someone's will. Somebody could name you and say, if I die, you will get this. Maybe this house, maybe this amount of money, you will receive this when I die. We're familiar with this idea, but there's a catch to it. The catch is you are not entitled to that inheritance until the one who owns it has died. It's not yours until the owner has died. Well, the image the author is painting for us is that we have an eternal heavenly inheritance waiting, but someone needed to die so that we could have access to that inheritance. The point he's making is that's what Jesus did. He died so we could have access to God's eternal inheritance. It's similar to how in the Old Testament, the covenants needed a sacrifice to seal them. So Jesus' death on the cross, it's for God's glory, his praise. It's so people can see how great God is, but it also does something amazing for us. It provides a way for us to know God and be with him forever. When Pastor John Piper, he said, everything God is and does is for you, not against you. There are so many ways for God to be good to you that it will take him forever to finish. But for God to be good to his people that way, there has to be a death. 
And I'm not talking about a pass quietly in your sleep kind of death. But no, the death that was needed is a bloody sacrifice. A bloody sacrifice. That's your second point on the outline, a bloody sacrifice. The next chunk of verses, 18 through 21, says that the old covenant began, inaugurated, established, dedicated. It was dedicated with blood sacrifice. We'll read it in Exodus 24, but for now, let's look at verses 18 through 21 of our passage. Our author just said, a death is needed, and then says in verse 18, therefore, not even that first covenant, that old way, not even that one was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, well, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. He sprinkled both the book of the law itself and all the people. And he said, and here's a quote from the Old Testament, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And verse 21 says, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The animal, the sacrifice had to die so its blood could be used to purify, set apart this place to worship God. That covenant, that agreement with God, it wouldn't be active, it wouldn't be effective unless something died. Moses took the blood of the animals, he sprinkled it on the altar where they did sacrifices, he sprinkled it on the book, the scroll that had the Old Testament law, He even sprinkled it on the people to confirm what God had said. Verse 20 of our passage quotes from Exodus 24. And and let me read a couple verses from that one so you can see Moses actually doing this. Exodus 24 verse 5 says, He, Moses, he sent young men of the people of Israel. They offered burnt offerings. They sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So they're sacrificing all these animals and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then verse 8 says that Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He needed a lot of blood. He had to throw this blood on a lot of things. He also put it on the tabernacle. Everything they used, everything Pastor Tom talked about last week was purified, set apart with this blood. And our author's conclusion in verse 22 of our text is that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did they need to shed this blood? Because without death, there is not forgiveness. There is not remission of sins. Friends, this is the great truth of this universe that God has created for us. Our sin, our rebellion against the one true God is a big deal. And the only way for it to be made right is that it demands a big sacrifice. It demands a death. We might might not like that, It might sound unpleasant to us, but that doesn't make it any less true. One scholar, Michael Kruger, put it this way, God has always been holy. He's been holy, set apart, different. God has always been holy. Sin has always been a big deal. Someone has always had to pay. And my friend, if you're listening here today and you don't 
know God through Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with him, then you will be the one who pays. You will pay for that rebellion. You will pay for that rebellion in hell for all eternity. One scholar said, God does not grade on a curve scale. It's not how good you are or how bad you are and it kind of balances out. No, you either know him or you don't. Now, that's not a popular message. That's not a fun message, but it is a true message. Those who do not know Jesus are eternally separated from God. Without God, we deserve God's daily anger, his judgment against sin. We deserve his justice. Without God, every moment of every day, you are in danger of falling into eternal judgment. If you are not a true Christian, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then you should be afraid of dying because there is no peace to be found on the other side. That's not because God is mean and cruel. It's because he is holy and just. We wouldn't want God to be any other way. We want God to punish wrong. When we some, see someone commit a crime, when we see someone hurt someone else, when we see someone abuse someone, when we see someone start wars, we want God to punish wrong. We don't want the bad guys to get away from it. And God, in his timing, in his way, that is exactly what he does. God must get justice for the sin and the wrong in this world. And every sin will be paid for with blood. You can't pray your way to God. You can't give enough money to get to God. You can't serve, do good things to get to God. Blood needs to be shed. There's no magic words that you can say. There's no religious leader that you can follow. There's no checklist that you need to complete. Blood has to be shed. However, however, or to use a word from the Bible, but for Christians, the person who pays is Jesus because he shed his blood for us. Again, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you take out some of those double negatives there, that means if there is shedding of blood, then there is forgiveness of sins. And this is what Christ has done for us. He has died for us. Now, when it talks about the shedding of blood, it doesn't mean that there's something magical or special in Jesus' physical blood. There's other denominations that call themselves Christian that say there's something special, magical in Jesus' blood. But no, when it's talking about the shedding of blood, it means that he died. He shed his blood by dying for us. Blood is talking about the life of someone. Shedding it means death. The blood is needed to make an atoning sacrifice. The animal has to be dead. If he took the animal and they, you know, just cut its paw and said, there, I have blood sacrifice. No, the animal needed to die. There needs to be a sacrifice that removes and covers sin. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God said, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar. You can give these sacrifices to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. If the animal didn't die, then there was no atonement from the sacrifice. 
Under the Old Testament, this meant that they were constantly offering animal sacrifices, killing animals over and over, death and blood again and again. And I know I talked about this before, and I'm not trying to get you squeamish or something before lunch, but we, I personally get a little squeamish thinking about blood. When, I know I say that I donate it, but every time I do, I don't look at what they're doing there. I just lay there on the chair and try to focus on something else. We, we get squeamish about it, but imagine that worship in the Old Testament. You had to see blood, lots of blood, all the time. What an unpleasant experience. Going there, watching an animal killed, blood being fling flown everywhere. That was church for you. And, but as a little aside, I, there is one thing, though, that we kind of lose by not having that. I'm not saying that's good because Jesus is far better. What we lose is they understood how serious sin was. My sin, the wrong I did, meant that this animal had to die. Meant that this sacrifice had to die for me. We realize how awful it is. Sometimes for us, it's too easy for us. We think, well, I, I've sinned. I've deliberately done something against God, but all I have to do is tell God I'm sorry, and then I can move on with my life. But the truth is, it's not our prayer to God that forgives us. It's not feeling sorry that makes us right with God. The truth is, it's Jesus Christ shed blood that saves us. It's only because he died that we have access to God and forgiveness of sins. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's in Christ that we have this redemption, salvation. It's only through his blood that we have forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' bloody death on the cross makes forgiveness permanent and complete for us. It makes what Jesus has done, yes, it was a violent, horrible thing, but it's also an expression of God's love for us. Yes, blood is disgusting, but it was the sacrifice needed to bring us to God. And so that makes true Christianity the only, the only religion that offers, guarantees you peace and acceptance with God. There's nothing in you that can, you can muscle up in yourself so you can make yourself right with God. No, you need Christ's blood, his death on your behalf. Friend, if you're here, you're trying to do it yourself. If I do just enough, then I'll feel good. Then, then I'll know that I'm with God. You won't make it. Don't do that. Trust in Christ's blood on your behalf. In fact, just after uh, this message and after we have a a time of response through song, we're going to celebrate that truth of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. We're going to do that through the Lord's Supper. And what's kind of interesting about the Lord's Supper is when Jesus first instituted it, when he was together with his disciples the night before he died, he said some words that should sound familiar to us. They should sound like the passage we read in Exodus. They should sound like our text today. Listen to what Jesus said. We read this earlier. In Matthew 26, Jesus took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for for the forgiveness of sins. It's almost exactly the same words. In fact, there's really just one word that's different between what we read in our quote in verse 20 from the Old Testament and what Jesus said. 
If you look in your Bible, verse 20 says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. It's not a sacrifice of an animal placed on us that saves us. It's Jesus's death on our behalf. When we take the Lord's Supper today, we are remembering his blood that seals our new covenant, our new relationship with God. I know we don't like thinking about blood, but when we take the Lord's Supper, that is a time that we should think about blood and about the blood that was shed to save us. The Lord's Supper, in fact, is a celebration because Jesus' bloody sacrifice only happened once. It only happened once for all time. Once for all. The next couple verses in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, in many ways, they were a review from what Pastor Tom preached last week, talking about this idea of lesser to greater. Let me read verses 23 and 24. They say, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves, they're purified with better sacrifices than these. Christ has entered not into holy places that have been made with hands, because those are copies of the true things. Christ into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That Old Testament tabernacle and temple, those were just inferior copies of the true place that God is worshipped. A few weeks ago, I was speaking from Hebrews chapter 8, and I was talking about those Old Covenant, Old Testament priest, the author said they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was going to build that tent, the very first, he was instructed by God who said, see that you make everything according to the pattern. The pattern. It was a copy. It wasn't the real place God is worshiped because that is in God's presence. Our author here is saying if those earthly places needed these blood sacrifices to set them apart for God, then the heavenly place of worship needed someone to die, some blood sacrifice, so that God's people could worship him. It was cleansed by Christ's blood. He is our better sacrifice. He didn't go up to a tent that people made with human hands. No, he went to heaven itself. It's not that heaven was defiled or needed to be cleansed by a sacrifice. It wasn't that, but Christ's death now sets heaven apart as a place where we can be in God's presence, a place where we can worship him. Christ is now in heaven before God on our behalf. His work is better. We read a couple weeks ago in chapter 7 that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Christ lives to do, to represent us before God, to intercede for us with God on our behalf. If you know Jesus, then God will not reject you because Jesus is there on your behalf. And so because he sees Jesus, God doesn't care who you are, where you're from, or what you did. And yes, those are lyrics of a Backstreet Boys song. Forgive me, I grew up in the 90s. But that doesn't make it any less wonderfully It's the love and grace that God shows us. Because of Christ's death, he brings us into that relationship.
This is true because Christ doesn't offer himself repeatedly. If you didn't get the blank, it's once for all. Unlike those Old Testament high priests with their constant sacrifices, he died once. Listen to verses 25 and 26. They say, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. It wasn't repeatedly because then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, this is what some other denominations that call themselves Christians imply when they insist you need Christ's literal blood every time you come to worship. But the Bible says Christ died once and he died for all time, for all our sin. And we'll spend much more time on that next week, but let me just briefly put it this way. Our sin needed to be atoned for since the very beginning and Christ paid for it all. He always existed, but as our verse says, he appeared as a human over 2,000 years ago so he could carry away our sin once for all. His sacrifice was permanent. It does not need to happen again and again. This is why he came. First John says, you know that he came to take away sins and in him there is no sin. He bore, carried away our sin. That means we're at the end of the ages, the culmination of all time, the last days of God's redemptive plan because Christ has come and he has brought us to God. One passage calls it the fullness of time. There's no other salvation we're waiting for. There's no other truth we need. As Michael Kruger says again, the good news is not that there's something that can be done, but that something has already been done and it is finished. As the title of the sermon is, you need a blood donor. You need a sacrifice on your behalf. And the only blood type that works to make this relationship is the blood of Jesus Christ. I know time goes late, but let's talk about what this means for us. So what? What does any of this have to do with us, Pastor John? Why should we care about this? Well, I could make up reasons, but fortunately the author does it for me. He tells us why we should care about this. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. The author says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The first takeaway we should have is that we should remember that after death, comes judgment. Remember, after death comes judgment. It's appointed. It is destined for us to die once. Because we sin, we will die. Death is not an accident. It's not a natural process. It is God's judgment on us for our sin. Again, verse 27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once. When God created us, he meant for us to live forever in a relationship with him. But because of our sin, we now die. You can try to run from it. You can try to push it off as far as you can, but it will come. It is a storm that you cannot outrun. There is death and then there is judgment. And that means that every single person here, you only have one life. There is no reincarnation. There are no second chances after death. This now is all you have. You need to figure out what your eternal future is going to be now. 
Make the best use of today because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. But here's the good news in that. Yes, there's death in our future, but Jesus died too. And so that gives us hope. He died and rose again. We have hope in a future with the risen Christ through faith in him. The Gospel of John talks about a story where Moses lifts up a serpent in the wilderness so that people could look at him and be saved. And John says, Jesus actually talking, says the Son of Man must be lifted up, talking about himself on the cross, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was lifted up on a bloody cross so that we could have life. As verse 28 adds to this, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he bore, he took away our sins with his death. First Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you know him, his bloody wounds heal you from the sickness of sin. That is what he offers. That is the only hope for that death and judgment that is to come. So that means that we have a decision to make. Because the second truth in this passage is that Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. Again, verse 28 says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. His work of salvation is done. The only thing we're waiting for is his return. The author may be playing off the idea of what the ancient Hebrews had to do in their worship. When the high priest would offer a sacrifice once a year and go into God's presence, they'd watch him go into this tent, this tabernacle, and then they'd wait and see, is this priest going to come back? And when he'd come back, they'd rejoice. Yes, our priest has come back. Our sacrifice has been accepted. Well, in the same way, our priest, our representative, Jesus has gone into heaven and we are waiting for him to come back from that place of worshiping God. The difference is, though, unlike them, they had to be worried. Is the priest going to come back or is he not? But we know, we know Christ is coming back. And when Christ comes, that will be when that final judgment will happen. Matthew 16 talks about the Son of Man coming with his angels in glory, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He will judge the lost for their sins. He will save his people. And so the question for all of us is, is he our blood donor? Is he your blood donor? Is his blood what is saving you? And if not, I pray that you would talk to someone about that. Seek his truth. Seek him. Come to know him, turn away from sin, reject that old way, and believe fully in Jesus Christ. Because for believers, our sin has been dealt with. And our final, ultimate salvation is all that remains. Christ died in the past, we're with him now, and in the future, we look forward to being saved from that eternal judgment for sin. Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should long wait for his return because we will be safe and secure in him. 
Someday all will see his reign and rule, and that is the day we are longing for. And so that means we shouldn't get too comfortable here, but instead spend our days living for Jesus, longing for him. It's interesting, I came across a verse I want to share with you from the Old Testament, but it talks about that great glory of seeing God coming to reign and rule. The book of Isaiah says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the good news. This blood donor on our behalf has gone, but he is coming back. We will see him and we will praise him. In just a few moments, we'll remember his bloody sacrifice through the Lord's Supper, that necessary once for all death. We will remember and celebrate that. But for now, let's focus on that end, that he is coming back and let's rejoice together, praising him, rejoicing in salvation, the salvation given to us in Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy.